Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Jason, the, the international community has spent billions of dollars. It's almost 20 years. The poverty rate in Afghanistan, in areas under government control, has gone from 32% of the population to 55% of the population. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. Afghanistan. U.S. troops have been leaving for years, fast, then slowly, then fast again. There's some kind of peace deal between the United States and the Taliban, but it doesn't involve peace. The Afghan government isn't even party to it. Russia, which lost its own war in Afghanistan a generation ago, may have been paying the Taliban to kill U.S. troops. Soon, though, Afghanistan will ostensibly be on its own again. What's next? Aside from more war, of course. To help us understand all of this, we have Kathy Gannon. She's a veteran reporter with the Associated Press based in Pakistan and Afghanistan. She witnessed the Taliban's victory in 1996 and the U.S. invasion in 2001 and has won numerous awards for her work. She's the author of I is for Infidel. From Holy War to Holy Terror in Afghanistan. Kathy, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Can you start off by just giving us a picture of how you see the situation in Afghanistan now? Well, I think right now um, it's a bit of a stalemate. Uh, the Taliban certainly um, are in either control or hold sway over 50% of the country. The government in Kabul is still quite chaotic and divided. Uh, there's President Khani there as the president, but uh, you still have some uh, bickering and political confusion between himself and Abdullah Abdullah, who was his rival in the presidential election. So there's still political turmoil in Kabul. Um, you have a peace deal now between the Taliban and the United States, which really was negotiated to allow for the U.S. troops and NATO to leave after, um, gosh, 18, 19 years now in Afghanistan. So, And the deal, while you're right, it didn't include the Afghan government, um, the deal was meant to set the stage for negotiations between the Taliban and the Kabul leadership, keeping in mind that in Kabul, it's quite divided. You have uh, President Khani and um, uh, the people who make up his supporters and, and his uh, portion of the government. You have Abdullah Abdullah, who was 
previous government and who disputed the results of the presidential elections last year um, in a tentative agreement of sorts with Ghani to have some say in the cabinet and also to lead efforts in the peace talks. Um, but until now, the negotiating team from Kabul has not really gelled and they haven't come up with a group yet to negotiate. And so at this point, we have the Taliban on one side, the government and its political allies and opponents trying to come together on the other side. In the middle, you have the U.S. and NATO trying to leave after 19 years uh, in a way that's not going to see the country return to um, a place where attacks can be staged against uh, whether the United States or its allies. So you're still in quite a state of flux. Um, They're still trying to figure out one of the key stipulations of this agreement, which was prisoner release before the start of negotiations. Um, There was a lot of negotiations on who would be released. The Taliban a thousand of government um, employees and soldiers, excuse me, and the government is to release 5,000 Taliban. So that's still in a little bit of a um, negotiation because they've, while they've released about 4,000 from the government side, there's about a thousand or so that they're still reluctant to release. And the uh, Taliban still have uh, maybe a hundred or so or 200 or so still to release. So, You have the prisoner release, which is still being negotiated. You have Kabul in flux politically with um, different factions and groups uh, still at odds with each other and still not in a position to start negotiations because as of now, they don't really have a negotiating team in place. You have the Taliban on the other side who have stepped up attacks against the Afghan government forces. They have agreed not to attack. U.S. troops, and they're not attacking U.S. troops, Um, and they have now a fairly strong negotiating team ready to go uh, to start negotiations. So that's where you are right now. Is the Taliban a unified force? I think it's difficult to say whether it is a solid, unified force without any uh, fractures, but I think it is fairly well solidified. I I think that the Taliban are far more cohesive, for example, than Kabul is at this point. Um, The Shura or the leadership council is in pretty strong control. Um, The negotiating team is very strong. And the battlefield soldiers are the ones that may not be willing to agree to all the, the, that is negotiated. For example, um, the, if there is an agreement, you may have some Taliban that are on the battlefield who say, listen, we don't agree with this and we're going to join up with the Islamic State or we're going to resist it. But I think by and large, you will see the vast majority of those Taliban fighting in the field who will go along with the negotiated settlement because the Taliban have put in Mullah Omar's son as the head of the military committee. So he brings with him the credentials of his father. So that goes well with the battlefield soldiers. You have the 
um, the negotiating team has five uh, people who were held for many years in Guantanamo. So that also gives them a great deal of credibility. You have Mullah Brother, who was in prison here in Pakistan for eight years. So that also gives him a great deal of credibility with those in the field who say, who may not trust Pakistan. So they see him as being maybe uh, more opposed to Pakistan and more independent. So there are a lot of reasons why the Taliban are a more cohesive unit and a more coordinated unit at this point than is the political leadership in Kabul. So what, what does the Taliban want at this point? I mean, I assume they want to control the country, but no, can you tell they, us a little bit about the kind of state they want to build too? Yeah, no, actually, that's not true. They they no. have not said that they want to control the government. That doesn't say that they don't want to. But what they've said <laughs> is that the um, they they recognize that they have to share power. They haven't said what that means. They say they want an Islamic system. They haven't said what that means. Um, they've said that they're willing to negotiate um, a, a ceasefire, complete ceasefire. They say that women can work and women can go to school, girls can go to school, but a woman cannot be president and a woman cannot be the um, uh, um, uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice. So, but, but they can be on the court, they can be judges, but they cannot be the president of the country and they cannot courts. So they are, are quite clear on some of their issues that, that, that they're prepared to negotiate. But there's a lot of vagueness. What do they mean by Islamic system? Um, what kind of uh, constitutional changes do they want? They do want constitutional changes. But I think, Jason, for me, one of the things is they do have a negotiating team together. If, if, if there is going to be an end to this war, there has, there's going to have to be a negotiated end to it. So at this point, they've got a team together. It's a strong team. It's a fairly cohesive team. It's the other side that hasn't gotten their act together. Now, if you really want to know what the Taliban want or don't want or what they're prepared to concede or, or not concede, then you have to get the other side together and move to a point where, where you're negotiating. You're sitting at the negotiating table. And if the political leadership in Kabul brings together a strong, solid team of strong political leaders, of strong civil society leaders, of strong women leaders, they can sit opposite the Taliban and say, okay, here's what our lines in the sand are. Um, here's what we're prepared to negotiate. And the Taliban say, okay, here's what we're prepared to negotiate. Then at least you can see some movement forward. Until then, it's all speculation. And where you are now is the Taliban do have a strong team together. They have said some of the things very vaguely what they want. Um, with the problem, where the problem lies right now is that Kabul at this point, the Kabul leadership is not cohesive and strongly united to the point where they can put together a strong team, come to the table, sit across from the Taliban and say, okay, here's where our lines in the sand are and we're not going to go beyond them. We're strong enough to say that and here's why we're strong enough and, and to speak in one voice. But unfortunately, right now, Kabul is speaking in many different voices. Um, there is a concern that not everyone in Kabul is really that interested in negotiations. Uh, they're quite happy with the status quo. So I think the issues 
are right now is getting a strong and solid team together from the Kabul side. Um, from the Taliban side, you have that. From the Taliban side, you know what they want in, in very vague terms. Um, but at least they're willing to sit at the table. And if the other side comes with a strong team, you can call their bluff. You can, you can have that negotiation. But at this point, you don't have that strong, solid negotiating team from the Kabul side. Why does, sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. Sorry. That was it. Uh, Why does Kabul like the status quo? Well, I mean, I think there are some who like the status quo. Um, If you're the president and you say you're going to be the president for the next five years, why do you really want to get into a negotiation that is going to um, perhaps require you to share power? If you're the interior minister or the defense minister and you're in a very solid position in Kabul, why would you want to get into a negotiation that says that maybe you have to negotiate that away? Over the last 19 years, you also have to realize that the people who were put in power in 2001 were a lot of warlords in that who were in power between 1992 and 1996. And when they were last in power, Jason, um, if people look back at history, they will see that it was a very a violent time that these warlords fought each other for power, for uh, position, for uh, to, to maintain their strength. And 50,000 civilians were killed during those uh, years between 1992 to 96, which gave rise to the Taliban. Taliban came, of course, they were a regressive regime that denied rights, no question about it. People were happy to see the back of them, no question. But what was put back in were these warlords. Now, they have, they have strengthened their positions again. There's, um, they've they've uh, consolidated their power. They have lots of money. They have lots of, of position. There is a strong argument for why they might be not wanting to, to negotiate and get into negotiations where they may have to share their power. So I'm not quite sure that... that Kabul is ready to negotiate. And, and certainly, I think they've, they've certainly shown that they have some reluctance to negotiate. Can they hold the Taliban off indefinitely so that they don't have to negotiate? Well, I mean, I don't think the Taliban have the strength to take any cities. They've shown that. It's been almost 20 years. They can uh, attack a city. They can take parts of it. They can get pushed back. They don't have the ability to take a city. But at some point, the powers that be, whether they're in Kabul or whether they're among the Taliban, have to at some point start thinking about Afghans and building a life for Afghans and creating a country for Afghans where Afghans can live in peace and there can be some prosperity. This was before the pandemic. So that means that more people are poor in, 2000, in, in 2020 than they were in 2012. And that poverty is, is set at somebody who earns less than $1.90 a day. So the poverty rate has gone up in government-controlled areas, despite the fact that billions of dollars has been spent. Corruption is rampant. Um, there's, there's a lot of reasons why a negotiated peace is necessary so that Afghans can start to develop their country and, and Afghans can have some kind of a life in peace. At this point, the leadership, whether it's Taliban leadership, whether it's political leadership, they haven't really shown or indicated where they're committed to um, 
finding a more prosperous life for Afghans. For themselves, yes, they've been very successful at that. No one has a vision for the future. Well, I mean, I, for vision for the future for Afghans, they certainly seem to have a vision for themselves. Where does Pakistan fit in now? Well, I mean, I think for sure Pakistan um, is always looking at uh, its borders, uh, what, it inter- what its interests are. Um, there is a, a real fear in Afghanistan that Pakistan will have too much um, uh, authority over or power over what the future will look like. I think that has decreased substantially because um, Pakistan has its own Pashtun population that is, is disgruntled, so they don't have quite the, the, the hold over the Pashtun population, which they would like to have, which is also um, uh, um, the backbone of the Taliban or the Pashtuns, eh? which is why everyone, um, and rightly in many ways, said that, that Pakistan was giving the safe havens to the, the Taliban, which they were, because they saw that they, they felt that they had an unfriendly government in Kabul and so wanted to have authority in, have some, uh, some position or, or, or ability to control events in, in Afghanistan. I think Pakistan's ability to control events in Afghanistan has dwindled considerably. Um, the Taliban don't trust them a great deal. The leadership within the Taliban um, is suspicious of Pakistan. The head negotiator uh, of the Taliban, Mullah Brother, was in jail for eight years in Pakistan. And he was put in jail because he tried to negotiate peace with Hamid Karzai uh, without Pakistan's involvement. Um, and he was put in jail. And at the time he was put in jail in 2010, um, the CIA was also party to his being put in jail. And according to Hamid Karzai, twice he had asked both Pakistan and the CIA to please release Mullah Brother. And twice they said no, because they weren't ready to negotiate with the Taliban back then. So there's a lot of, of uh, suspicion within the leadership of the Taliban toward Pakistan. So I don't think Pakistan's abilities to control the situation in Afghanistan is as great as it once was, or is that significant anymore? That's not to say that they wouldn't like to. That's not to say that the uh, Pakistan doesn't have uh, a desire to make sure that uh, they have uh, a friendly neighbor, that they have their border is uh, protected. Um, and, and it's not to say that they won't uh, um, cause, cause problems. They see the, the Baluch Liberation Army has safe havens in, in Afghanistan. Baluch, Baluch Liberation Army is attacking Pakistan. So, I mean, it's a very volatile neighbor, whether it's a neighborhood, whether it's Afghanistan, Pakistan, Pakistan, India, Iran, uh, India, Iran, Pakistan. It's a very volatile neighborhood. And then throw in Russia and China into the mix and the United States. This neighborhood is, is a... a, a a volatile one, and each participant in the neighborhood is looking after their own interests and figuring out how do they best protect their own interests. And that doesn't always work peacefully, and it always doesn't, doesn't always work well for the neighborhood, and it doesn't always work well for um, relations between the different neighbors. All right, we're going to pause there for a quick break. You are on with Kathy Gannon. We are talking about Afghanistan. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back, War College listeners. We are talking about Afghanistan with Kathy Gannon. How is Russia involved at this point? Uh, and what do you think about the story that ran in the U.S. press about bounties being put out uh, for U.S. soldiers? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think there's no question Russia is is uh, involved. I think Russia, there since 2000 and what, 16, 15, there has been talk about Russia giving weapons and money to the Taliban. No question. And uh, uh, in part for the same reason why the U.S. is now negotiating and wanted to negotiate with the Taliban was because of the uh, growth of the Islamic State in Afghanistan. And the Islamic State is close with the uh, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, which is the IMU, which is the um, terrorist group that has many Uzbeks and and has caused problems for um, the Central Asian states. Uh, In 2018, Russia reinforced its bases in Kazakhstan, I believe, because they were worried about the growth of the Islamic State and the IMU, which is working with the Islamic State, in the northern areas of Afghanistan. So, uh, they they started pushing it, putting in a lot of money and weapons to the Taliban, and, and that's at least what the intelligence and, and what many Afghans believe and say, and the American intelligence say. And um, so so they would be doing it for that. They would also like to give the the U.S. a black eye. They got you know they had to leave with their um, tail between their legs in 1989 after 10 years in Afghanistan, unable to uh, pacify the Mujahideen who were supported then by the United States, who, uh, with the help of U.S. stingers, which were given to the Mujahideen to fight the Russians, helped to defeat the Russians. So the Russians, I think, would very much like to have seen a black eye given to the United States and to see the U.S. leave um, not as um, a, a victor, but, you know, as uh, as having to leave. So I think that's that's all those factors come into play. Did they pay bounties to the Taliban? Well, I mean, first it was Taliban-linked um, uh, fighters. Then it was Afghan militias. So first, this was in 2018-19. I, I don't know that, that the Taliban really needed to have be given money to, to kill American soldiers. They were trying to kill them then. I'm not saying that they, they didn't take money. I'm not saying that money wasn't given. But I'm not clear on... You're in a war. One side of the war is fighting the other side. They were killing American soldiers. They were killing NATO soldiers. They were killing Afghan soldiers. It was a war. They were fighting each other. Um, Trump had dropped the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, the story is a little bit vague in, in my mind that they needed to be given 
money to as an incentive to kill U.S. soldiers. I think they were killing them willingly. Um, were they taking money? Absolutely. I'm sure they were. Um, money is, has been passed around in Afghanistan since 2001 in suitcases. The CIA was passing around money in suitcases to, to their allies. No doubt the Russians were, the Iranians were, the Chinese were. So mountains of money has come into Afghanistan and people are giving it to their allies for their agendas. I'm not sure that specifically the Taliban needed to be paid to kill U.S. and NATO soldiers back in 2018-19. There was a war going on. There is a war going on, and, and they're on opposite sides of this war. So no doubt the Russians are putting money in. And no doubt they, they took money. Um, exactly how that played out in terms of bounties, I'm not quite clear on that at all. Yeah, the characterization of it in the U.S. press and the sources behind it have been a little bit strange, I think. Sure. And, and I think for sure Russia was spending money. For sure Russia would like to see, no doubt, the U.S. to leave um, uh, with their tails between their legs. Um, they would like to at least give them a, a rough time. Uh, while they're there. But at the same time, Russia doesn't want um, chaos in Afghanistan. It's at their um, uh, their southern border. Um, China doesn't want to see chaos because of the Uyghurs in the Turkestan movement. They worry about uh, on their borders. So while everyone might want to give the U.S. a black eye. I don't know that, I think uh, Halazad, as the U.S. envoy, has been negotiating with both China and Russia to try to come up with a deal that will allow the country to move forward and will unite forces against the Islamic State, which would seem to be the main enemy right now in Afghanistan for all of these players. And the Islamic State, whether that includes um, Uyghur factions, whether it includes includes the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, uh, the Islamic State, uh, you know, renegade Taliban, however you define other in terms of militants operating in Afghanistan, I think uh, China, the U.S., Russia all want to see a situation where they can have a unified force against that force, that that uh, movement, whether it's the Islamic State or those militants that have, have very strong agendas against Russia, against China, against the U.S. Can you talk a little bit more about those groups? Do we have any idea how strong they are, how many there are? that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to know. I mean, the Islamic State, uh, it, it wanes and, and, and uh, grows. There, there certainly has been strong operations against the Islamic State in eastern Afghanistan. I know I've talked to some Department of Defense uh, intelligence people in, from the U.S. that are worried about uh, their movement in, um, into Punar and Nuristan, because those uh, areas are very mountainous and easy to get lost in and very difficult to to rope them out of. Um, There is a concern that uh, they may not be large in numbers, but they're able to plan um, uh, operations and and they have traced some failed operations or operations that they managed to, to discover before they could be carried out. Um, to Afghanistan and two operatives that, that came from Afghanistan. Um, 
there was some uh, information that the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan was doing recruitment in northern Afghanistan among Uzbeks there. Um, but I think it's very difficult to put a figure onto the, the numbers of fighters. Um, and I'm not sure that numbers really reflect their, their, how dangerous they are. But there certainly is a, a wide-ranging concern, whether it's in China, whether it's in Russia, or whether it's in the United States, about what they can pull off, what left unattended they could present, what kind of a danger they could present if left unattended. And uh, in a way, that's, that's one of the leading reasons why the U.S. wanted to get this deal with the Taliban. Whether the Taliban could come through on that is, is another question altogether. Will the Taliban be a, um, um, a good partner against these groups? Will the Taliban be a good partner against al-Qaeda? What is proof that they will be against al-Qaeda? What is proof that they, they have um, broken ties with al-Qaeda? Is there proof? What kind of intelligence does the U.S. have that they have, in fact, broken ties with al-Qaeda? So there's all kinds of questions left unanswered on that end of the, the, the deal, which was the big part of the deal vis-a-vis the U.S., because all the U.S. is interested in, I mean, it's interested in, obviously, that Afghanistan um, finds some sort of stability, but its big concern is its own national security, as it should be. I mean, that's everybody's main concern is their own national security, and I think the U.S. sees their national security being threatened by the Islamic State. And they see the Taliban as an ally against the Islamic State. Now, there's been no explanation or um, details of the agreement that gives guarantees or, or, or that we know about what those guarantees are from the Taliban, that they can, in fact, be that partner against these insurgent groups or these terrorist groups like the Islamic State. And have they, in fact, broken ties with al-Qaeda? And if they have, what's the proof that they have? So all of those questions are still unanswered and and explanations haven't been given because when they're asked, the U.S. says, well, you know, we have intelligence reasons why we can't give that. Yes, we're following that. But I think those are very strong and important questions that need to be answered, whether the Taliban will break ties with al-Qaeda, if they are breaking ties with al-Qaeda, what is the proof that they're breaking ties with al-Qaeda, where are the likes of uh, uh, Ayman al-Zawari or um, Saif al-Adil, these people who are very strong within al-Qaeda, whether they're able to organize al-Qaeda the way it once was, but that doesn't mean they can't tomorrow. So where are they today? And what is the uh, strength of them? And what is al-Qaeda in the Asian subcontinent that uh, started up back in 2013-14? Who's running that? Where are they running it from? Um, They've taken credit for attacks in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in India. Um, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions on those fronts that... um, it need that that I think need to be answered to explain whether this deal gives the United States the national security guarantees it wants. Can we talk about all right? So, what is the U.S. presence like currently? And I'm also wondering how America has changed Afghanistan. Uh, like, what has the U.S. presence 
what do you think the lasting legacy of the U.S. presence there will be? Oh, you like small questions, don't you? I do like small questions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, Yeah. I I don't, I don't think the legacy, the U S legacy in Afghanistan will be one of, you know, remarkable development. Obviously here it is 20 years later and the poverty level is, is higher than it was even in 2012. People are very disgruntled about the, the level of corruption and, and how um, Afghanistan developed post-2001. Um, I think that there was a lot of uh, hope among Afghans in 2001 that their country would look very different in, 2000, in 2020 than it does. Um, so I think um, that uh, Afghanistan was a difficult country for, for the U.S. and for the coalition to get into, and, 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 and they, they maybe they weren't completely committed to it initially when they got in because Iraq was already on the cards. So I think there is a lot of um, different answers to your question and parts to your question that I think it's quite impossible to say, okay, here's the legacy of the U.S. in Afghanistan. I think there were a lot of, of um, missteps and um, a lot of, of um, uh, resources that were redirected to Iraq and um, a decision not to um, go strong into Afghanistan and rebuild Afghanistan when, in fact, Afghanistan had come out of 30 years of war and desperately needed rebuilding. Um, And I think the results of that are being seen today. Um, I think that people who were put in power in 2001 had a reputation when they were last in power for for, um, perhaps being... Uh, less than committed to to clean governance. And and so I think uh, the results of that are being seen today. So I think that that, um, it's not specific American legacy or coalition or Western legacy or NATO legacy. Um, I think that um, Afghans, if you ask many Afghans, are are quite frustrated and disappointed and um, sad about where their country is in 2020, um, 20 years later. And I, I think um, maybe a lot of Americans maybe are quite uh, um, sad to think with all that money that was invested, where, where did it go and, and what was, was, was built of it. Um, on the other side, you know, I mean, it is 2020. You have a new generation of Afghans and, and regardless of, you know, they, they, they have a desire for their country. You, you have... Um, whether they're in the villages or in the cities. Um, Afghans have always wanted to see their country grow. Their leaders haven't given them the, the, the tools and, the, the, um, and behaved in a way that allowed that, and, and, and that's still holding them up. So I guess I've skirted your question, but I don't know that it's possible to really give a, a, a definitive one-point answer here is the legacy of the U.S. in Afghanistan because the U.S. came in with the coalition and with NATO. And, you know, so, so it, it, uh, it, it's seen in the broader picture. And, and, and I think there's a great deal of frustration among Afghans right now with the um, lack of development, lack of security, lack of, of, of future. I mean, Gallup did a, um, a survey in 2000 and, 18, where people had left less faith in their, their country's future 
than than ever before and and they 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 didn't see a future so so i think there's a lot of of frustration among afghans who really just sort of hope for something much better um in 2020 so i think um and and i'm sure there are a lot of people who were working on behalf of the us and the coalition who also um maybe looking today are quite frustrated with the way things have turned out and 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 what has happened with resources and and how they've been used. Kathy, I just want to say thank you so much for taking us through this. And, uh, you know, and I, I just, uh, I've always really admired your work and uh, think it's amazing what you do. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. And, and um, it's, it's such a complicated um, issue, like anything, you know, but it, there's so many levels to it and, and it's so nuanced. And, and they're, they're, unfortunately, in, in wars, everybody wants a good guy bad guy, right, wrong, uh, good, evil. And, uh, and Afghanistan is so much more than that. And it's just really a lot of gray and, 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 and um, missteps. And, and, uh, and at the end of the day, Afghans, whether it's in this particular war or the last one or the one before, they seem to somehow get caught in the middle in their life. They keep waiting for it to get better. That's it for this week, War College listeners. War College is a production of War College LLC. It is Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin Nodell. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. Hey, we have a Substack. Go to warcollege.substack.com to get our weekly newsletter every Monday. We collect the stories that fall through the cracks, put them together, and tell you what's going on in the world. If you like the show, please visit us at warcollegepodcast.com where you can find our Twitter and Facebook pages and drop us a line. We will be back very soon with more conversations about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.